Are we recording? We should probably be recording. We are recording it's now. It's the big red button. <laughs> <laughs> I still barely know how this thing works. I know. Same. Do you want to tell the people our big announcement? You guys, you asked for it. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're going to do a Patreon. We are going to do a Patreon. It's like up now. Yeah. And and he, so here's the deal with the Patreon, you guys. So we're not going to do one of those things where there's 25 different levels. Mm-mm. You can give $5 or you can give more than that if you want to. Mm-hmm. We'd be super grateful. But yep. we have one level of donation, mm-hmm. $5. For that, what you get is one bonus episode per month. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be true crime necessarily. It's going to be like some fun document. It'll be a documentary. It'll be super fun, whatever. Um, and in addition to that, we're going to do all kinds of other content just for you guys. Yeah, like scheduled live Q and A, so we'll let you know. And like the YouTube videos will only be for you guys. And they the stream Patreon. right on the Patreon yeah. on Patreon.com, mm-hmm. right? And we'll let you know when we're going to do it, so you're not going to miss it. But in addition to that, we're also going to do from time to time maybe a lot because I think it's going to be really fun. We're going to yeah. do unsolved mysteries where we're going to watch a segment and then just talk about it for like five minutes yeah. as a video. Yeah. Um, and tell you like what's ridiculous about it. Yeah. Did you want to say what our first? Yeah. So is? our first, we can say the first two. Our first documentary that we're doing for Patreon is Queen of Versailles. Oh you guys, you have, if you've never seen this documentary, it's, it's like, you can get it on Netflix, you can get it on Hulu, whatever. It is, it's actually a really, really well made documentary. <laughs> and it's, Jillian hates it so much. I had so much to say about it. Get your own garbage belt for this one. I you know. Guys. Just moving forward. And then our second documentary is going to be. Truth or, Truth or dare. dare. Madonna. 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 Uh, Did Antonio call? I can't. I can't. I'll do it all the time. Every day. Um, <laughs> Sean. Every- <laughs> Sean. <laughs> you guys, it's happening. Oh, my God. Here's oh a little sneak peek of I what know, the Patreon's going to be. I know. It's going to be amazing. Um, so go to go to our website where you can see, find links to it or go to patreon.com and search for True Crime Obsessed Podcast. Yeah. And thank you so much for asking know, us. you guys. I thank mean, you. Thank we, you. Thank we you. would not have been, we would not do this if it wasn't for you. So we're yeah. overwhelmed and truly obsessed with you that you even want us to do that. And the fact that you guys know how much work goes into making this podcast and you want to support it in this way yeah. means so much to us. Thank so you guys so We much. love you. And uh, now to the show. Jillian Pensavale. <laughs> Patrick Hines. Ooh. <laughs> I love the evolution of this, the constant evolution. Girl. Girl. What are we talking about today? My friend Rockefeller. <laughs> I hated this movie, this documentary. I hated I it. Lo- I, you, sent, you sent me that text and I thought, oh, maybe this is going to be crap. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, no way. I love this documentary. Well, buckle up, everybody. I hated it. <laughs> He introduced himself as Christopher Crow. We knew him as Christopher Chichester. In Baltimore, his name was Chip Smith. This is Clark Rockefeller. He's the new neighbor. This case is like a one of those 500-piece jigsaw puzzles. He called my, um, my father, dad, and my mother, mother. So he would be like a brother to me and like a son to my mother and father. Do I miss Clark? Not anymore. Not since I read the news. (laughs) Wow. Clark told us that Helmut Kohl was staying with him that Sunday. And too bad you won't be here next week because Britney Spears is visiting me next week. Now, most people would hear that and just go, you know, dude. Instead, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be here for Britney either. He got a card under the name Clark Rockefeller under your credit card account? Yes. I agreed to marry him, and um, I was loyal. Did you love him? Yes, I did. Did you believe he loved you? Yes. He says, you know, I have this aunt, Blanchette. You know, you may have heard of her. She started that little old museum on 53rd Street. MoMA, right? It turns out that I've inherited a few paintings. And I said, okay, well, what are their names? And he said, have you ever heard of Jackson Pollock? (laughs) How shocked must this guy have been to realize that people he'd known decades ago places he'd been decades ago were now coming back to claim him. You, you made a kind of a fool of a lot of people who... Walter, I, I never ever meant to make a fool of anyone. 
When I was with him, I thought I was with the fanciest person I'd ever met. But the truth is, I was with perhaps the saddest, scariest, lowest, most degraded person I'd ever met. Clark was the, the writer, he was the producer, he was the director, he was the makeup artist, he was the costume designer, he was the set designer, and he was the actor, you know, of this movie that was Clark Rockefeller. One of the first people we meet is Martha Henry, art dealer. Mm. Did you notice that she was holding her planner and her glasses in her hand the entire time? And when she would gesture, it would just be one of those old planners that had the snap and just like papers. And her glasses. So she, I don't know if she like was taking notes during this whole ordeal, but she was referring to that planner. You guys go back and watch because it's just like in the corner of the frame every once that in a while. That is so funny. Yeah. Well, she is an art dealer and she lived next door to who we'll be calling at this point Clark. Right. And we'll get back to her later. She's kind of our narrator throughout. It seems like <laughs> she knows so much information. <laughs> but the thing that is so crazy about this is that like basically when she finds out that her friend Clark was Clark on- Rockefeller. Clark Rockefeller is on the lam. She is all excited for like a big summer news story. Then it became the great summer New York mystery scandal that we hope we have every summer. And of course, for me and some of my friends um, who, you know, had known Clark, it was, you know, all the more juicy for that. Right, and she's already telling the FBI who shows up at her door. She's like, oh, and he took the daughter and she's safe? Yeah, no, I knew that would happen. A few days later, I receive a phone call from one of the FBI agents. He said, I want to let you be one of the first to know. We found Clark. We rescued the daughter. No one was hurt. Um, We found them in Baltimore. And I said, and she was fine, just as I said she would be fine. Already, I'm like, where are we? What are we talking about? I hate when documentaries start like that. We learn that he's actually named, this is going to be fun, huh? His name is Christian Gerhardtswriter, I think. Right? Gerhardt's writer? Anyway, he's from a small village in Bavaria. He was an exchange student in high school. Yeah. I don't know what program this was, but he ends up in like super fancy (laughs) rich pants Connecticut. I don't know. I mean, is that a lie? I don't know. Right, right. He had met a American tourist who gave him the idea that he should come to America as as an exchange student. Clark got this idea and ended up uh, coming to Connecticut where he was living with the family. And then after high school, he goes to Wisconsin and marries some woman and married her only for the green card and like the next day just runs and leaves and goes to California. He met a young woman, a fellow student, courted her and then married her for the green card and then left within a couple of days of that marriage and uh, traveled to California. And then he gets to California and we have this really weird moment where somebody, this like German man that received a letter from him, like a friend of his. This from his like youth, faceless German voice who we never actually see face to face. Is reading a letter which is translated, which basically we find out that he is like producing TV news and also writing for Charlie's Angels. Mm-hmm. And can we please talk about the two Charlie's Angels scripts, the names of the episodes? <laughs> What are they? Angel on a Roll and Chorus Line Angels. Angels on a Roll and Chorus Line Angels. <laughs> One singular <laughs> sensation, every single step you take. <laughs> and he's also super good friends with George Lucas, <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Harrison Ford. He's just diving in. Can you do like a B-list celebrity? You have to do the biggest people at the time. Right, exactly. George Lucas is a good friend of mine. Larry Kasten and Steven Spielberg. I know all of them very well. Also Harrison Ford. I think the thing that I love the most, and this has been in the Facebook group that people have been talking about this a lot, that like almost right away we meet Gene and Elmer Keln. Oh boy. And they're listed as his surrogate parents. Yeah, who live in Loma Linda, California. Okay, but the very first thing that we see about oh. <laughs> she is fixing his shirt for like five minutes, and he's just sitting there 
looking I, at the camera. Yeah, just taking it. And I, at first I was like, what exactly is she doing? So let me paint a picture if you guys haven't watched the documentary. He's sitting there, not maybe, the, they're just like sitting on their couch and he's like, a, maybe not the best posture. And so his pants are super high waisted. So when she, she's just like retucking little, like with her finger, parts of his shirt into the pants. Is that what she's yeah, doing? She's and like, you can hear the sound of it. That's the best that you can <laughs> And she's basically that's her version of like Elmo run a comb through your hair. The documentary crew's here. And he's just sitting there with his arms folded, just you know she does that every day. She probably licks her thumb and then just wipes the the food off his face too. Poor Elmer. But I like didn't know at first. I was like what is she do- why is she poking him oh she's like weirdly tucking his shirt in and he's just here for it what is he gonna do they've been married for 82 years this is just every day for him I know just the- just like- <laughs> but with one like two fingers just pu- pushing the shirt in like Gene can you give the man the littlest bit of dignity the camera crew's here already so should we go through the story after the, yeah. the weird shirt tucking happens? Yeah. Which, you guys, is not the point of this interview. <laughs> but <laughs> we the, all knew it was going to be our point of the interview. Of yeah. course. <laughs> but Gene and Elmer have some things to say. So in 1978, they're on their way to Africa. Ugh, they make decide, it a long trip, you guys. Make it a long trip. Let's stop over to Europe. <laughs> Must be nice. On the way, we decided that we may as well make it a long trip and include England, Central Europe, Italy, uh, on our way to Africa. So they meet Clark on a rainy evening in Germany because he was hitchhiking. And while we were in Germany, we were driving and it was a rainy evening. And we took an exit at a sign that said Bergen to the right. And while we were on this exit where this uh, young man was hitchhiking, we decided, well, if we picked him up, uh, he would tell us a good place to find lodging. Gene and Elmer think it's a great idea to pick up a stranger. In a, in a country where they don't speak the language, they're going to stop and pick up a hitchhiker. On a rainy night. Like, that is every horror movie. <laughs> I know. Especially that it's raining. Like especially that. that it's Germany. And you don't know this person, and it's the middle of the night. Like, stop. Right. And then he insisted, this Clark person, oh, come meet my family in Bergen. Yeah. So this is when Elmer says that Clark made it really clear he was interested in film Neuer. <laughs> He definitely let us know that he was interested in film. He didn't say, I've got to get to California, but he said, that is why my studio looks a little bit like this. I'm interested in film noir. Film noir. (laughs) Yeah. Is what he was trying to say. Oh, Elmer. And, you know, they just, they really, it was a really innocent thing. They just wanted to exchange Christmas cards. So they gave the stranger their address. Ding dong. Clark is on their door five minutes later. Literally, like just crazy it always came on sunday and i think it was an afternoon and uh, we would have dinner and we'd walk and we'd visit and he'd go home i love in the background what's the wife's name gene gene is like he didn't try to stay here he didn't try to stay here he never asked but he to knew stay all, here knew all he our children to stay mm-hmm. with us or anything i just think that's so telling of a super manipulative person yeah or like one who's good at it like look what i don't need from you totally yeah totally so at this point, he's known in 1978 with Gene and Elmer. This person is known as Chris Gerhardt's writer, which, of course, Elmer can say at the drop of a hat. Totally fine. Flawlessly. Chris Gerhardt's writer. But then this Chris person tells Elmer and Gene he wants to go as Chris Chichester. Right. And Elmer and Gene are like, well, that's what they do in Hollywood. Right. They, they- use, quote, pseudonames. <laughs> he was using... A uh, pseudonym, uh, Chris Chichester. And the closed caption, you'll be happy to know, said pseudo N A M E S, not pseudonym. They didn't write out pseudonym and then just assume that Elmer pronounced it wrong. They just thought that Elmer was saying pseudonym. And we thought, well, you know, that's what they do in Hollywood. That's what they do in the movie business. Now we're back to Martha. She doesn't know him yet, but she's saying at this point in his story, he moves to L.A. to work in the film business, but he doesn't live downtown. Instead, he moves to a high-end suburb of San Marino. Like a middle-aged, where right. no like young person trying to break into the movie industry would live there. Right. There's no way. Very odd for a young person to do. He had all the, the European mannerisms, so that plays very well. And he obviously had perfected his British accent. 
And she. this is when she also tells us uh, one of the other personas he goes by. Okay. <laughs> he immediately creates the craziest, um, most outlandish persona, I think, which was this character, Christopher Chichester, Mountbatten, the 13th Baronet, a British aristocrat. Who are these idiots <laughs> taking this at face value and not asking any questions? If someone introduced themselves like that to me, I'd be like, what? Because you would immediately get on Google and you would find out that that's not a thing, but they didn't have that back then. I'm also such a dick. I would be like, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> like, I would ask them to their face, like, so what is that? Like, where's your paperwork? Right. You carry paperwork as a 13th baronet, don't you? <laughs> so now we meet the residents of San Marino, the people that, like, this guy hoodwinks. Right. And the first one that we meet is Peggy Ebright, mm-hmm. an artist. Mm-hmm. And people are always like, why are you so easily tricked? And she makes the point of like, when somebody tells you who they are, why would you question it? Why would one question someone who comes in and says, my name is, I presume that's their name. But she also says that she, he points out the house that he lives in. He told me he lived in a home in which he did not live, which was next door to where, and in fact, he did live. And I remember saying, oh, I always loved this house. I'd love to see it. And he said, well, it's a mess right now. And, and that was the end of that. Right. And it's always one of those things where it's like, I wish I could, but I simply must be going. Chris Chichester had a remarkable way of exiting. Uh, asked the question, made, the challenge made, he would say, oh, excuse me, and wander off and say, hey, Harry. Can we talk about how, because at this point he's known as Chris. Yes. With these people that we're talking to. He um, was in local theater. We had a a, a very active little theater group. The uh, actors were all the men of San Marino, all these moguls of industry, uh, joined up and had a wonderful time. This woman is talking about how it's like the barons of industry. Like, can you imagine the CEO of like Microsoft and Dell? They're all doing like, like damn Yankees, you <laughs> I know? I love damn Yankees. How dare you? <laughs> so there's a video of this. There's the San Marino like community theater. <laughs> I, you, you, please, you tell what the role he played. And I don't even know what show it was. He played the poodle. Nobody knows what, what show it was, but they have these videos of this like community theater with these grown men. And then Chris playing the poodle. Yeah, it's, there's the sets made of like construction paper. Yes. He's playing a poodle, but he's like on all fours in a white poodle costume. In a leash. Like it's it's yeah. something. Nice doggy. Where's your owner? He must have run out before the gates closed. I haven't seen him for years. Are you all alone in this park? No. There are lots of people here, but they never come out from under their bushes. Cut to 1984 in the Olympics. Right. In 1984, the Olympics were in L.A. And we meet this Frank, how do you say his last name? Giradort? Frank the crime reporter. <laughs> Let's go with that, Frank. <laughs> and things were magic. The whole world came here. People from the real country of San Marino came to visit San Marino. And Chris slipped into their parties as if he was, you know, meant to be there. And he's talking about how, like, in L.A. at the time, like, it was just, like, the roaring 80s. The way he describes 1984 in Los Angeles when the Olympics were here yeah. is, like, Frank, the crime reporter, you want to be Frank the mystery writer. I know that. Because he's saying things like coke flowing up the noses of the wealthy, like, flowing up the noses. Like, and, like, enough with the pros, Frank We get it. The crime we get it. Writer. It was a good time to be alive He was like, go, go, and new wave, and it was a new wave of life. And I'm like, Frank, girl. Everything was, like, you know bubbling and exciting and new the new wave right the new wave of music was the biggest thing on the radio and everything was pastel and pink and happy coke was flowing freely into the noses of the wealthy and champagne was pouring into all the glasses everywhere around LA but he also talks about like when the royalty came to the Olympics when the Duke of Edinburgh the Prince of England came here Chris was there, too. He says that Chris was, like, a part of that group. So, like, somehow Chris is finding a way to infiltrate these circles and, and in that way, at least, prove himself. I think he took advantage of people and learned to take advantage of people in that era. The other thing that the romance novelist tells us, too, is that, like, his living situation. So she talks about how, like, he lives in the back, in this room off the garage. It was like a 1950s party room. And I guess at some point she got to see inside of it because she describes it. This was not a guest house. This was one of those old 1950s party rooms that someone had built onto the garage, a great big long room with a cement floor. At one end, there was a bar. It was very shabby. I remember, 
I think there were curtains hanging on a sliding glass window and they were kind of sagging and dusty. In one corner, I think there was a little bed that he slept on. There was this rolling cart with a VCR on it. Um, it was dusty, shabby, unkempt. But this would have been after the fact that they would have seen it mm-hmm. because shenanigans happen oh and we'll God. get back to that later. Yeah. So then... Christopher, like, disappears and goes to Greenwich. Mm. One day, Christopher Chichester is gone. No one knows where he went or why he left San Marino. He is just no longer in the guest house. He arrives in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is one of the richest towns in the U.S. Who is he now in Greenwich? He's Christopher Crowe. Relative of? Filmmaker Cameron Crowe. <laughs> Almost famous, everybody. Cameron Crowe, like... That's his brother. He just renting a room in a house with someone, but he needs to make a living. So he's also trained as a stockbroker. Now he's suddenly working in junk bonds with a character named Stanford (laughs) N. Phelps. He was a recommendation of somebody that worked for us and had done a good job, Catherine Cimino. He came into the office and we had a chance to interrogate him. He seemed smart and, you know, good for me. So we gave him a shot. He is taking no shit from anybody. He decorated his offices in green because he wanted people to think of money. We decorated our offices in green. And the reason for that is I wanted our people to think of money. All right? We want to cultivate, encourage green thinking. I'm like, what hack businessy book I know. did you read that in? I know. Basically, we find out that he gets fired. Right, because Stanford's like, I need to, you need to answer some questions, and he won't do it. I said, what'd you say? And he said, I won't answer that. I said, all right, you can leave in the next 30 seconds. And I said, if you're not out here in 30 seconds, we're going to have a marshal come and arrest you. And that's how he leaves that. And he ends up on Wall Street working for a company called Nico, which is a securities firm. And he's running his own department, which is the Eurobonds department. Which is amazing because we meet a guy named Bob Baruska who is like actually knows what he's doing. And he talks about how like his bosses were he was just the bosses were totally swindled by this guy. I think he was hired because the head of our trading room was impressed by his stories and all the people that he claimed that he knew and the yacht club that he claimed to belong to and. Uh, the lies were so fantastic. This guy just thought that they were real and kind of hired him after just having lunch with him without really checking him out. And then, like, on his first day on the floor, Chris walks up to this Bruska guy and he's like, hey, do you know anybody who wants to buy Eurobonds? Which is classically stupid. You couldn't possibly be the person in charge of Eurobond sales and not know any customers. I love a guy who can just, like, talk his way into a job. It's that whole thing of, like, say yes and figure it out later. But use that power for the forces of good, please. Right. And also, like, don't stop with the bullshitting once you get there. (laughs) Act like you know a little bit about Eurobonds once you're there. Like, because it's all going to come crashing down. We meet Mihoko Manabe. Mihoko. (laughs) Who was his girlfriend for seven years. (laughs) They lived together. You cannot tell me after seven years. I know. You didn't know what was happening. Well, yeah. So we meet Mihoko at her deposition. Yes. So it's just the footage of her being Surprisingly, deposed. a lot of these women don't want to be interviewed for the camera. Really? And one of them makes it very clear she doesn't want to be d- disposed. We will get to her. Hold on tight. So Mihoko tells the story about how whoever, whatever, this guy, I don't even know what name he's using. Right. I guess we'll say Chris. With the Rockefeller, the guy that my, our friend Rockefeller, yeah. who's not our friend at all, garbage. <laughs> so he tells her, his longtime girlfriend of seven years, that he was fired from Nico because HR heard that his name wasn't Christopher Crow. And did he tell you what name uh, Human Resources thought was not real? The Christopher Crow. That's how we all knew him. And Mihoko's like, okay. Right. She just believes it. And then all of a sudden, according to Mihoko, he starts acting very strangely. Because a police officer calls. Yeah. Do you recall getting a telephone call from a detective, Dan Allen, from the Greenwich Police Department? I do. And after this police officer call is when everything shifts. And what was the defendant's response when you told him that this Greenwich police officer had called and wanted to talk to him. He said that he he wasn't really from the police. Who wasn't from the police? Detective Allen. Okay. That um, I I should, you know, disregard what he has said and that uh, to tell 
him if he should ever call that he wasn't there. Not suspicious. Can you imagine if either of our husbands said to us like, no, 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 that was actually not a cop. Uh, that you spoke to on the phone. How do you even know this? I know. Like, what are I you know, talking about? And then he tells her that his parents are in danger. And because of that, he is now in danger. People were coming to get him. Right. That's all That's the, all the details she has. Yeah. People were coming to get him. And now they, like, all have to leave. He had to go into hiding. And so we were going to go into hiding. And we were going to go away. We were going to get married. We were going to go away. He wanted me to uh, break ties with my, my family and friends. So we could go into hiding. The last we hear from Mihoko at this point is that they were all going to leave together. Yeah. And then like suddenly in a little bit, there's like another ex-wife of his or another ex of his. So that's this is what I don't like about the documentary where I'm just like, where did she go? Right. She like, just disappeared. We just don't really learn about that. We just jump instead back to Jean and Elmer. Oh, my God. I have this like in all caps with like a lot of exclamation marks. They're back. They're back. Yay. Yeah. So what we find out here is really big information yeah. because they, they were his neighbors in, in California. Mm-hmm. And what happened is the new people who moved into the house where Christopher had been living wanted to put in a pool. I was home alone one day when the doorbell rang and these two gentlemen uh, introduced themselves as being detectives from the L.A. County. They said, we, we have a murder on our hands that Chris uh, Gerhardt's writer lived in this lady's home or complex. And uh, now that he has left, uh, the home was sold and the new buyers decided to put in a swimming pool. And while they were digging the backyard for the swimming pool, they come across these plastic bags with body parts in them. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Can you imagine? (laughs) Like, if you're that person, also, like, that's awesome that you can just be like, I'm going to dig up my property and put in a pool. And then being like, this is going to be so lovely and luxurious and I'm going to relax. Oh, my God. (laughs) Why are there plastic bags full of dead bodies? Like, wouldn't you have to move? Like, I would just not. Like, can you imagine that? Like, how do you relax in that pool where you're like floating and drinking your Mai Tai? Well, and then we realize just like to get serious for a second, we realized that the son and daughter-in-law of the landlady of that home had been missing for years. Yeah. At this point, uh, the son of his landlady in San Marino, John Sohus, and his wife, Linda, had been missing for years. They disappeared around the same time that Chichester left California. So we learned that this is how the cops found him and called Mihoko because he drove the missing couple's truck to Connecticut, sold it, but he didn't have the title. And when they did a title search, it, it, like it went to the police in that town in California. Somehow they, the police must have called where Clark was working and he got wind of the message and he didn't come to work the next day. He called in and said that he had the, um, the Chilean parents who were caught in a revolution or whatever was going on and he had to suddenly leave the country for South America. And then all of a sudden Clark now is living in an apartment building in Manhattan and this is where he meets Martha. We're in 1993 now. Yeah. So he moves into this apartment on like Central Park West or Central Park South. It's not really clear but it's, it's on the Upper West Side and it's beautiful. Right. And Martha tells this story. Martha, I love her for this. About how there's like a knock on the door <laughs> and it's this guy who just says, hey, I hear you like new age music. He said, I hear you like new age music. So I have a lot of new age music I'd like to share with you. So I was put off because New Yorkers don't do that sort of thing. You don't just knock on someone's door um, without being expected. And then I was also put off because it meant that he was listening to me and I felt like I was being spied on. But, like, she immediately becomes kind of fond of him. But she says he's much younger than her, and, you know, he would have, like, parties, like, cocktail parties, and sometimes she she would go and she'd be super bored because it was, like, a bunch of young boys, like, talking about dumb stuff that guys talk about. Yeah, well, she makes this point that she thinks it's super weird that a Rockefeller would be living in a shitty rental building and not have any furniture. He had no furniture to speak of. You know, his table was a card table with folding chairs and... I was shocked when I saw it because it was like, wow, he lives like a college student, you know. But in those days, he was a little bit old for a college student, but he was really only about 31 or 32. She is one of 800 people who say that it looked like a... a frat boy's apartment yes there's no yeah. furniture it's just really shitty and she he would he would serve things like sherry i remember the cocktails though he never had like a great selection of cocktails 
you know, he would invite you over for a glass of cream sherry, Harvey's Bristol cream. I mean, something so weird. Right. Like he didn't have good cocktails or good drinks. And Martha was like, what the hell am I doing here? I know. Like a I, bunch I'm of an idiots. art dealer. Yeah. Damn like, it. Give me the champagne, man. I know. But then she starts talking about this like open door policy that they had. So he would leave his door open. She would leave her door open. Yeah. Martha's not allowed to talk about what New Yorkers do and don't do <laughs> enough. We do not just hang out with our fucking doors open ever. No. He used to come over, bring his dog over. I know Yates was over here a few times. Yes, because I kept my door open. And so then he got into the habit of keeping his door open. And so we had that sort of door open policy. And he knew I was an art dealer. Um, <laughs> and then one day she gets a phone call. Will she ever forget it? She will never forget it for as long as she lives. <laughs> Don't even ask her. And I remember, I'll never forget it. I was, it was around 5 o'clock, late afternoon, sitting here, 5, 5.30. Get a phone call from him. He says, you know, I have this aunt, this great aunt, and Blanchette, and she died recently. And I knew that, yes, Blanchette Rockefeller had died. And this is like in the preview. We've heard this a million times. But he's like, you know, she started that little museum on 53rd Street. You know, MoMA. And so he's like, I've inherited some paintings, and I don't know if they're worth anything. Do I need to get an insurance policy? And she's like... She's like, girl, what kind of paintings do you have? And he said... You know, I got these modern things, and I really don't like them, and I don't know who these artists are. So, have you ever heard of Jackson Pollock? <laughs> like it's a Polish joke or something. Martha thinks it's the funniest thing she's ever heard in her life. <laughs> I just think it's a really bad attempt to it's sound like attempt. you don't like know you don't who know. the fuck Jackson Pollock is. Exactly, exactly. And she's like, of course, you need an alarm system and an insurance policy, and I'm coming right over. Right. And I ran next door, and I saw the paintings. The Mondrian was above the fireplace. Um, you know, the, um, the Pollock was where the dining room would have been, maybe. So here you have no furniture, really, to speak of, and you've got these three major paintings by three of the top artists of the 20th century. Just for the record, that's all fake. None of those paintings in that frat boy apartment with no furniture was real. Like, nothing was real. Right. None because of this. he clearly isn't an heir to this person who invented the MoMA. Like, none and of this is real. And the Rockefellers. But, like, he's able to swindle Martha, this art dealer, who, like, totally falls for a hook, line, and sinker. I know. And then she's just like, so then I go to India for five months. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Have fun, Martha. It must be yeah. nice. These people putting it in pools and going on five-month <laughs> exotic trips. Totally. And in this time, when she comes back, Clark, she's learned that Clark is now obsessed with abstract expressionism. But, like, to his credit, he's learned all about it in the six months she's been gone. Mm -hmm. He's a major, he's, like, a major collector. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, how did this happen in my absence that this guy became one of New York's top collectors, you know? And I'm an art dealer. I live next door to him. This cannot, this has to stop now. I have to get in on this. Are you ready to talk about Sandra? I mean, <laughs> Sandra Boss, her actual last name, everybody. You guys, Sandra Boss was his wife for 13 years. This woman is super smart. You can tell she's brilliant. How on earth she didn't know what was happening for 13 years? Well, one of my this is how we meet Sandra, right? Again, in her deposition, because shockingly, she, she wasn't going to invite them into her. She's like wearing pearls and the and the like collared shirt and the sweater. And she's, her eyebrows are raised the whole time. She's at this point 100% in on the joke. She looks like what you imagine super rich people in Connecticut look like. Yes. Like that. She might Is she wearing a headband? She might be with the pearls. Like that's just who Sandra is. And she's got like is. a tennis lesson she has to get to. Like you got, hey, let's go. Right, Hurry right. it up. <laughs> but what she does is, so she's on the stand and she like immediately tries to like get on their level yeah. with the lawyers and she's trying to use this courtroom language, but she is so flustered and she yeah. says everything really quickly so they can't really understand her. And she's like, the defendant called me on the phone. And he's like, the who? And she's like, the defendant. I'm sorry, who spoke to you? Over the, uh, the defendant. You guys, we are going to find out how they met. Okay. This <laughs> I hate, this is the one thing I liked about this movie. <laughs> Can you please tell the people how they met? A clue party. What type of party was it? Um, it was, uh, you know, informal cocktail party. It was um, a theme of Clue. So you were supposed to come as a character, and we played Clue. It was pretty innocent cocktail party. Everyone came dressed as a character from Clue, and then you played Clue. <laughs> Are you talking about the, the board game Clue? The board game Clue. You guys. And hopefully had the movie on, right? Totally. Absolutely. I mean, my God. Who did she Or are us? they monsters? I don't know. If they didn't watch, also have the movie on, garbage. 
<laughs> Who did she go as? Miss Scarlet, the poor thing. <laughs> Who did you go as? I was Miss Scarlet. But you know what? If you're going to a costume party, you might as well be the total opposite of yes, who you are. Totally, right? Totally. So good for her. Be the I, pretty one. Right? And who did he go as? Professor Plum. <laughs> was derpy, it? derpy, derp music. <laughs> was the defendant in character? Yes. Who was he? He was Professor Plum. Like, that's all, like, it's, like, on record. Yeah. Where he's like, and who'd you go as? Miss Scarlet. And who'd the, fe- who'd the defendant go as? Professor Plum. Like, that's, like, official record. Girl, Pixar didn't happen. Did she wear the green dress from the movie or not? Let's go. So, by late 1995, Sandra and Clark get engaged. We're, like, back to Sandy on the stand. Calling her Sandy. Sandy girl, I hope that's cool. And we're... And the lawyers are... She's a huge fan. I mean, yeah, obviously, yeah. right? I'm right up her alley. <laughs> she hates everything about me. That, that next one-star iTunes review, that's Sandy about me. <laughs> so the lawyer's trying to ask about Clark's education, and Sandy is, like, super snippy about it. This whole thing is... Because the subtext is like, you girl, you fell for this. Right. That's the subtext. And she's like, I know, I look like such an idiot. But instead of just admitting that, she's right. getting super, like, ice princess This whole story is so bonkers. So we, for, they're, like, asking about his education, and she's like, yeah, what he told me, as I have said, yeah. like, periods in between every sentence. Like I said, this is what he told no, me. What he told you. This is all, told, all based what he, on what he told you. I, what he told me was, as I have said, that he didn't have formal education until he was able to speak, and then he had home tutoring, and then he went to school um, at 14. So what we learn is this bullshit story (laughs) about how he just lost his speech when he was super young, and then got it back at like 10 or 11 years old, and then went to school again. But wait, how did he get it back? Okay. (laughs) You guys know how much I love dogs, right? He told Sandy. Um, It was an incident where he saw a dog and um, suddenly said, you know, woofness about the dog and then suddenly was able to talk. Sandy believed every word of this, everybody, just to be clear. He told her that he saw a dog and he really liked this dog. And then he said the word woofness. W-O-O-F-N-E-S-S. Woofness. I know. And then suddenly he was able to talk again. I know. And it's hilarious because they say the word woofness. Like woofness? Woofness. Woofness? Woofness. That's also on record in the same (laughs) paperwork as Miss Scarlet and Professor Plum. Yes. The word woofness. Suddenly said word woofness. 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 And you could speak after that. Correct? Um, Something to that effect. Yes. Uh, So whatever. So we get back to the story. He moves to, they, they leave the city. He has like some sort of breakdown and he moves to New Hampshire. We meet Laura White, who was his neighbor. Oh, God. And, you know, she's she's kind of like small towny, but like, you know... She's super New Hampshire. Super New Hampshire. Really nice. Whatever that means. I, <laughs> I think he actually said he was Clark Rockefeller and Sandy, and the realtor actually told us not to tell anyone <laughs> because she was a friend of our, our families. She said, don't tell anybody, but he's uh, a Rockefeller. I said, oh, okay. So... Eventually, like they, the New Hampshire house is sort of like their their like vacation house, and they move to Boston so that his like school age daughter now can go to school. Whose name is Snooks? <laughs> and everybody says it like it's not weird. Like, like it's not like is that short for something? Can you know. give the poor girl a fucking chance, a fighting chance, <laughs> Snooks? I know Snooks. I'm here for you. Find I me know. On so we meet this guy, Patrick Hickox, and the first thing he says is, my wife said, and the first thing I said was, oh my God, this man has a wife? <laughs> I was a little surprised. Yeah. I first met Clark at a large um, black tie ball. My wife came up to me and said, what Clark Rockefeller says about you, Patrick, he's wonderful. So we meet this we meet this Patrick Hickox guy and he seems really nice. He's an architect and he's talking about how like you can't not be impressed by the fact that there's a Rockefeller in the room. I guess. But then he tells this amazing story about how like in early in their friendship they're out to dinner and the bill is dropped and he's like, I thought I'd do the gentlemanly thing and like reach for my wallet. But I fully expected that a Rockefeller would would beat me to the tab and um would um would insist on on picking up, up the check. But in fact, there wasn't even the beginning of emotion. Not even a movement no. towards his wallet. Not even the pretend like yeah. you shouldn't have. Just nothing. It was just like, oh, thank God, someone actually. 
<laughs> right, totally. So, but the thing about Patrick is that he's the one who starts to like, he's the one who starts to like pick it apart. He's like, wait, hang on a second. Right. So Patrick gets to go to his house and like he's looking at all this art and he describes all the art on the walls. Mm-hmm. I noted that there was quite a lot of art, but there was hardly a stick of furniture in the whole place. A works by nearly every major figure of that abstract expressionist period. There was a lovely kind of casualness and comfort with the works, a lack of preciousness, um, and that I found entertaining. And he's like, there's like a, a lack of like preciseness to it, or the colors were a little bit off. Portfolio was very good, except that every single one seemed to have brush stroke a little different than what I had been used to. Um, colors were a little bit different. I mean, I've seen bad Matisse. It looks like a Matisse. It doesn't look like somebody else's work. And then he says this thing. So I have big questions, I said, about this about this artwork. And I said, and I'm also not so sure about this Rockefeller thing. How is he the first person I know. to how, question it? How is he the eighth person to say that there's no furniture in his home, <laughs> but all this artwork, but only the first one to be like, right. hmm. I know. I mean, come on. And then we go back to the cops because there's a murder investigation in case anybody forgot. Right. And the cops were literally like, I don't care about the artwork because there's a murder mystery on right, our hands. Right, right. But we weren't concerned with the art because we're concerned with the murder. And so we had no real nexus to seize the art because it's not what we're investigating. So as far as I know, that stuff is still there. And, and then we go back to Sandy. Sandy Boss takes the stand once yeah. again. Sandy Boss takes, takes the stand. stand. And this, again, we don't really oh, fully so get annoying. the picture here. But Sandy decides that she's going to leave him. And I don't even know that she's found out about his like fake identity yet. Right. And then during the divorce proceedings, when all these things were coming out, then she hires a private investigator. Um, I found out <coughs> in August of 2007 that he was not Clark Rockefeller. And was this during the divorce proceedings? Yes. And so then I had a private investigator go and um, try to find out who I was married to, and they couldn't find out. They couldn't tell me who I was married to. And then we also learn that they're getting a divorce, and the neighbor, our like New Hampshire neighbor lady, says that Clark had snooks 90% of the time. Right. Which makes sense because he didn't work. <laughs> right. He said, I just don't know what to do. I just, I had, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know she was unhappy. I said, don't worry. You've been taking care of Snooks 90% of the time in New Hampshire. You know, when we were up here, I said, no judge is going to give full custody to a mother that's only taking care of her child 10% of the time. But then Sandra brokers this deal where she hightails it out of the country and she arranges that um, there are two supervised visits with Snooks where like she will bring Sandy and Snooks will come to America or wherever he happens to be setting up shop at the time. And there are two supervised visits per year. Clark became obsessed about you know, having his getting his daughter back and being deprived of time with her. And he could not travel to London which I'm sure is why she moved to London, because he had no passport. He had no identity. So he was trapped here, so he began to plot the kidnapping of his daughter on his second supervised visit. Now he's like building a life in Baltimore, where he's, he's like dealing with the real estate people to get a place in Baltimore. What's his name? I don't know. Chip. Oh, right. Now he's going by Chip. Right. Clark had established another identity um, ship somebody and um, he was going to living he had rented a carriage house in Baltimore he had a catamaran boat and he was setting up a new life for himself in Baltimore he spent probably six eight months planning this finding the right real estate property concocting his story with real estate agents and all the while he's like setting in motion the wheels to kidnap his own daughter which is 8 months in the making but what he never ever did was change his appearance right on the day of the kidnapping this guy Patrick the one who had the questions he calls Clark earlier in the day mm-hmm. i happened to be um out of town i called him for some reason in the middle to later morning and he seemed very hurried and a bit anxious and apologized that he was right in the middle of something. 
and that we'd have to speak later. And he gets this like weird rush, like I can't talk right now, whatever. And later that day, Patrick and his wife are driving into Boston and I know the sign that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like a video monitor and there's an Amber Alert. There is a large building on the Massachusetts Turnpike that has a giant um, screen on it, which sometimes has um, video images, sometimes wording. And in this case, it had Amber Alert, Amber Alert, Amber Alert, and it described, it did not name the alleged perpetrator. Maybe in the back of my mind was the notion that this could in fact be Clark and um, Snooks. When like it's the news alert where it's like this this young girl is missing, it's just his picture because he's the only suspect. He didn't he never changed his appearance, and everyone's like, "That's Clark, that's the baronet, that's right, Chip, totally. that's this." Yeah, exactly. And so everyone is just like, "Oh my god!" And that's really essentially how he gets caught and tried. So because... he was only on the lam with his daughter for like two days. <laughs> no, <laughs> good good work, Clark. He got away with it for a few days. I mean, the Amber Alert was out there; it was all over the newspaper. Papers, but he was no longer Clark Rockefeller. He didn't change his looks. So the real estate agent recognized him. He was busted. And then they fingerprinted him and discovered that he was not who he said he was. Snooks is fine. Like yeah. nothing. He didn't do anything like that. He just wanted to take her. But like, then he we didn't. he's on trial now in LA. The big shock came as I'm continuing reading about Clark Rockefeller. There is now a skeleton that's been unearthed in the back of the home that he lived in when he was Christopher Chichester in San Marino. So this was utterly, I mean, I, I can't tell you. This was then like, oh, so Clark was the murderer next door. This is kind of what happened. Right. I don't really know what happened. Can you explain it? Um, I stopped paying attention, but I have something like from the Wikipedia article. Oh, good, Can I just good, read please. that? Yes. Um, it just says evidence in the case was largely circumstantial, but jurors were most swayed by two plastic book bags found buried with the boy, the uh, landlord's son's remains. Because they were the book bags that he had. They were they were Clark's college book bags from the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, which he where he had attended classes from 1979 to 1982, and one from the University of Southern California, where he took film classes. Right. And one juror said that that was the most solid piece of evidence, and so he's like. And then they also heard evidence about the pickup truck and all this stuff, and so he was found guilty of murder. So he was found guilty of murdering this the kid John, but it's John's wife is also missing, right? And like, and and Clark definitely had something to do with it. They just can't prove it. They've never been able to find the body. Yeah. Do you think maybe they'd want to spend a little more time on that in the documentary? Like, why I don't know, I, know I know more about the murder? Not saying that in a creepy no, way, but I totally like, know. is this piece of shit like what? What did he it's do? Like the whole, it's like the last three minutes of the documentary. We find out that like, yes, he did kill this kid and probably this kid's wife, but we just don't know. And it feels like he's still not being held accountable for anything. That's what drives me nuts. Well, and it's insane because he sort of gets the last word where he's talking about. This is where he compares himself to Amanda Knox. <laughs> That's for him, not for her. Yeah. Yeah. And he is saying that, like, this will be overturned on appeal. I didn't do it. There's no way I did it. Okay. Yeah. It's, right. no, it's not been overturned. All right. Goodbye. Guys, just a quick reminder, don't forget to check out our Patreon page, where there's already two mini bonus episodes up in the TCO Patreon podcast feed. That's right, there's a separate podcast feed. We're going to be adding monthly full bonus episodes, fun videos of us watching Unsolved Mysteries, and more. You can go to our website, truecrimeobsessed.com, and click on the Patreon link, or you can search patreon.com for True Crime Obsessed Podcast. Girl, where can they find us? At True Crime Obsessed. No ED. No ED. And then True Crime Obsessed.com. Don't forget to do the hashtag Get Obsessed. Mm. If you have a friend that you think would love the podcast or a family member, people have been doing it. We retweet it. We super engage. It's, it's super fun. I love it so much. Yeah. Um, you can find me at Patrick Hines on the Twitter, at Patrick Hines underscore on the Instagram. And I'm at Jillian with a G on all the things. On all the things. So coming up next, we're going to do Aileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer, another Nick Broomfield documentary. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it. (laughs) So here's the promo for that movie and stay tuned for our hilarious outtakes, which are hilarious. TM, 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 TM. And then, (laughs) and our palate cleanser this week is from one of my favorite Broadway musicals from last season. It's called Something Rotten. It's amazing. Okay, bye. Bye. I never provoked those guys. It's very nice, very ladylike. I didn't even swear in front of my clients. I had no intentions of killing anyone. I'm not that type of person. I want to tell you something about her birth. I thought that she got some kind of brain damage. I defended myself, which everybody has the right to do. If I could do it all over again, I would have became an 
outstanding citizen of America. I sentence you to death for the murder of David Spears. I'll be up in heaven while y'all rotten in hell. Wife and kids get raped. My evil happened to come out because of circumstances. She's been failed by the legal system. Cops knew who I was and they covered it up to turn me into a serial killer. They want to turn him into high-profile cases for books and movies. We're executing a person who's mad. I believe in the death penalty and I have a duty to implement the law. <laughs> Eileen, life and death of a serial killer. Thanks a lot, Society, for railroading my ass. And also, I think, very telling of what these manipulative... Manipulative... <laughs> Elmer, welcome. Welcome. So happy to be here. Let me just tuck my shirt in real quick. Will you make the tucking noise again? I have to do it with, the, with my fingers close to the mic as if the people can hear my fingers moving. Oh, God. Um, the way he describes 1984 in Los Angeles when the Olympics were here yeah. is so insane about like, Go, go, a new wave and coke flowing up the nose of the elderly. I'm like, you're a crime reporter, but you want to be a mystery writer. Wait, did you mean the elderly? The wealthy. Did I say elderly? (laughs) Did I really? That might have been in my notes somewhere. The coke flowing up the noses of the elderly. Wow. I don't know where that came from or what that was. (laughs) Junk bonds. Who cares? Sure. Garbage. Junk bonds. Oh, perfect. Perfect time. <laughs> and the lawyer's basically like, what were you thinking? Because every time he's like, were the, how many bank accounts were there? And she's like, 11. And he's like, whose name were they in? Mine. Like, people are coming to get me. No more. I can't tell you any more details, but let's hightail it My family's in danger and Almost Famous 2 might not get made because of it. Almost Famous 2. <laughs> They finally get the plane. Still almost famous. Still water. Still water almost famous. That's my new favorite word. I know. That's the, the other thing I liked about same. this documentary. Yeah. Woofness. Absolutely. Come on. Woofness. Yeah. We need t-shirts with woofness on it. I can't <laughs> handle it. Oh my God. We need to make t-shirts with woofness. Woofness. But now we see the disgusting Christian Gershwin Who? Christian Gershwin <laughs> I was like, are you Hammer? Whatever. So Walter really wants to like pick apart the great Gatsby and like compare that story and the interviewer literally is like we only have an hour we do not have time I do not have time for your great Gatsby comparison we'll do a musical no kidding a musical what could be more amazing than a musical with song and dance and sweet romance and with the musical we might have half a chance Oozahs, big applause with everyone cheering for us Starlet won't quit 